Chapter 19 of The Skylark of Valeron by E. E. Smith. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 19 As has been said, Radnor's reply to Siblin's message was unheard, for his ultraphones were not upon his person, but were lying disregarded in a corner of the room in which their owner had undergone examination by his captors. They still lay there, as the Valeronian in his cage was wafted lightly back into the spaceship from which he had been taken such a short time before, lay there as that vehicle of vacuous space lifted itself from its dock and darted away toward distant Valeron. During the earlier part of that voyage Radnor was also in the ether, traveling from Valeron to Clora. The two vessels did not meet, however, even though each was making for the planet which the other had left, and though each pilot was following the path for him the most economical of time and of power. In fact, due to the orbits, velocities, and distances involved, they were separated by such a vast distance at the time of their closest approach to each other, that neither ship even affected the ultra-sensitive electromagnetic detector screens of the other. Not until the chlorine vessel was within Valeron's atmosphere did her commander deign again to notice his prisoner. As I told you when last I spoke to you, I am about to land you in one of your inhabited cities, the amoebus informed Siblin then. Get in touch with your Vardile at once, and convey our instructions to him. You have this sample, and you know what you are to do. No excuses for non-performance will be accepted. If, however, you anticipate having any difficulty in convincing your fellow savages that we mean precisely what we say, I will take time now to destroy one or two more of your cities. It will not be necessary. My people will believe what I tell them," Sibylin thought back. Then, deciding to make one more effort, hopeless though it probably would be, to reason with that highly intelligent but monstrously callous creature, he went on. I wish to repeat, however, that your demand is entirely beyond reason. That ore is rare, and in the time you have allowed us I really fear that it will be impossible for us to mine the required amount of it. And surely, even from your own point of view, it would be more logical to grant us a reasonable extension of time than to kill us without further hearing, simply because we have failed to perform a task that was from the very first impossible. You must bear in mind that a dead humanity cannot work your minds at all. We know exactly how abundant that ore is, and we know equally well your intelligence and your ability," the captain replied coldly and mistakenly. With the machinery we have left in the mine, and by working every possible man at all times, you can have it ready for us. I am now setting out to explore the next planet, but I shall be at the mine at sunrise twenty of your mornings from tomorrow. Ten thousand tons of that mineral must be ready for me to load, or else your entire race shall that day cease to exist. It matters nothing to us whether you live or die, since we already have slaves enough. We shall permit you to keep on living if you obey our orders in every particular. Otherwise we shall not so permit." The vessel came easily to a landing. Siblin, in his cage, 
was picked up by the same invisible means, transported along corridors and through doorways, and was deposited, not ungently, upon the ground in the middle of a public square. When the raider had darted away, he opened the door of his class prison and made his way through the gathering crowd of the curious to the nearest visiphone station, where the mere mention of his name cleared all lines of communication for an instant audience with the Bardile of Valeron. "'We are glad indeed to see you again, Kleinor Siblin,' the coordinator smiled in greeting. "'The more especially since Quedrin Radnor, even now on the way back from Clora, has just reported that his attempt to rescue you was entirely in vain. He was met by forces of such magnitude that only by employing a zone of force was he himself able to win clear. But you undoubtedly have tidings of urgent import. You may proceed." Sibylin told his story, tersely and cogently, yet omitting nothing of importance. When he had finished his report the Bardile said, "'Truly a depraved evolution, a violent and unreasonable race indeed. He thought deeply for a few seconds, then went on. The Council Extraordinary has been in session for some time. I am inviting you to join us here. Quadrant Radnor should arrive at about the same time as you do, and you both should be present to clear up any minor points which have not been covered in your visiphone report. I am instructing the transportation officer there to put at your disposal any special equipment necessary to enable you to get here as soon as possible." The Bardile was no laggard, nor was the transportation officer of the city in which Sibylind found himself. Therefore, when he came out of the visiphone station, there was awaiting him a two-wheeled automatic conveyance bearing upon its windshield in letters of orange light the legend reserved for Kleinor Siblin. He stepped into the queer-looking, gyroscopically stabilized vehicle, pressed down 926438, the location number of the airport, upon the banked keys of a numbering machine, and touched a red button, whereupon the machine glided off of itself. It turned corners, dived downward into subways, and swung upward onto bridges, selecting unerringly and following truly the guiding pencils of force which would lead it to the airport its destination. Its pace was fast, mounting effortlessly upon the straightaways to a hundred miles an hour and more. There were no traffic jams and very few halts, since each direction of traffic had its own level and its own roadway and the only necessity for stopping came in the very infrequent event that a main artery into which the machine's way led was already so full of vehicles that it had to wait momentarily for an opening. There was no disorder, and there were neither accidents nor collisions, for the forces controlling those thousands upon thousands of speeding mechanisms, unlike the drivers of earthly automobiles, were uniformly tireless, eternally vigilant, and sober. Thus Sibylin arrived at the airport without incident, finding his special plane ready and waiting. It also was fully automatic, robot-piloted, sealed for high flight, and equipped with everything necessary for comfort. He ate a hearty meal, and then, as the plane reached its ninety-thousand-foot ceiling and leveled out at eight hundred miles an hour toward the distant capital, undressed and went to bed, to the first real sleep he had enjoyed for many days. 
As has been indicated, Sibylin lost no time, but rapidly as he had traveled, and instantly as he had made connections, Quadrin Radnor was already in his seat in the council extraordinary when Sibylin was ushered in to sit with that august body. The Visiphone reports had been studied exhaustively by every counselor, and as soon as the newcomer had answered their many questions concerning the details of his experiences, the council continued its intense but orderly and thorough study of what should be done, what could be done, in the present crisis. "'We are in agreement, gentlemen,' the bar dial at last announced. This new development, offering as it does only the choice between death and slavery of the most abject kind, does not change the prior situation except in setting a definite date for the completion of our program of defense. The stipulated amount of tribute probably could be mined by dint of straining our every resource, but in all probability that demand is but the first of such a never-ending succession that our lives would soon become unbearable. We are agreed that the immediate extinction of our entire race is preferable to a precarious existence which can be earned only by incessant and grinding labor for an unfeeling and alien race, an existence even then subject to termination at any time at the whim of the Chlorans. Therefore the work which was begun as soon as the strangers revealed their true nature, and which is now well under way, shall go on. Most of you know already what that work is, but for one or two who do not, and for the benefit of the news broadcasts, I shall summarize our position as briefly as is consistent with clarity. We intend to defend this, our largest city, into which is being brought everything needed of supplies and equipment, and as many men as can work without interfering with each other. The rest of our people are to leave their houses and scatter into widely separate temporary refuges until the issue has been decided. This evacuation may not be necessary, since the enemy will center their attack upon our fortress, knowing that until it has been reduced we are still masters of our planet. It was decided upon, however, not only in the belief that the enemy may destroy our unprotected centers of population, either wantonly or in anger at our resistance, but also because such a dispersion will give our race the greatest possible chance of survival in the not-at-all-improbable event of the crushing of our defenses here. Our power-driven dome of force is to protect the city proper, and around that dome are being built concentric rings of fortifications housing the most powerful mechanisms of offense and defense possible for us to construct. Although we have always been a peaceful people, our position is not entirely hopeless. The sine qua non of warfare is power, and of that commodity we have no lack. True, without knowledge of how to apply that power, our cause would be already lost. But we are not without knowledge of the application. Many of our peacetime tools are readily transformed into powerful engines of destruction. Quadrin Radnor, besides possessing a unique ability in the turning of old things to new purposes, has studied exhaustively the patterns of force employed by the enemy, and understands thoroughly their generation, their utilization, and their neutralization. Finally, the mining and excavating machinery of the Chlorins has been dismantled and studied, and its novel features have been incorporated in several new mechanisms of our own devising. 
Twenty days is none too long a time in which to complete a program of this magnitude and scope, but that is all the time we have. You wish to ask a question, Counselor Quadrin? If you please, shall we not have more than twenty days? The ship to be loaded will return in that time, it is true, but we can deal with her easily enough. Their ordinary spaceships are no match for ours. That fact was proved so conclusively during our one engagement in space that they did not even follow me back here. They undoubtedly are building vessels of vastly greater power, but it seems to me that we shall be safe until those heavier vessels can arrive. I fear that you are underestimating the intelligence of our foes, replied the coordinator. In all probability they know exactly what we are doing, and were their present spaceships superior to yours we would have ceased to exist ere this. It is practically certain that they will attack as soon as they have constructed craft of sufficient power to ensure success. In fact, they may be able to perfect their attack before we can complete our defense, but that is a chance which we must take. In that connection, two facts give us grounds for optimism. First, theirs is an undertaking of greater magnitude than ours, since they must of necessity be mobile and operative at a great distance from their base, whereas we are stationary and at home. Second, we started our project before they began theirs. This second fact must be allowed but little weight, however, for they may well be more efficient than we are in the construction of engines of war. The exploring vessel is unimportant. She may or may not call for her load of ore. She may or may not join in the attack which is now inevitable. One thing only is certain. We must and we will drive this program through to completion before she is due to dock at the mine. Everything else must be subordinated to the task. We must devote to it every iota of our mental, physical, and mechanical power. Each of you knows his part. The meeting is adjourned sine die. There ensued a worldwide activity unparalleled in the annals of the planet. During the years immediately preceding the cataclysm there had been hustle and bustle, misdirected effort, wasted energy, turmoil, and confusion, and a certain amount of success had been wrested out of chaos only by the ability of a handful of men to think clearly and straight. Now, however, Valeron was facing a crisis infinitely more grave for she had but days instead of years in which to prepare to meet it. But now, on the other hand, instead of possessing only a few men of vision who had found it practically impossible either to direct or to control an out-and-out -out rabble of ignorant, muddled, and panic-stricken incompetence, she had a population composed entirely of clear thinkers who, requiring very little direction and no control at all, were able and eager to work together wholeheartedly for the common good. Thus, while the city and its environs now seethed with activity, there was no confusion or disorder. Wherever there was room for a man to work, a man was working, and the workers were kept supplied with materials and with mechanisms. There were no mistakes, no delays, no friction. 
Each man knew his task and its relation to the whole, and performed it with a smoothly efficient speed born of a racial training in cooperation and coordination impossible to any member of a race of lesser mental attainments. To such good purpose did every Valeronian do his part that at dawn of the day everything was in readiness for the Chlorin visitation. The immense fortress was complete and had been tested in every part from the ranked batteries of gigantic converters and generators down to the most distant outlying visiray viewpoint. It was powered, armed, equipped, provisioned, garrisoned. Every once populated city was devoid of life, its inhabitants having dispersed over the face of the globe to live in isolated groups until it had been decided whether the proud civilization of Valeron was to triumph or to perish. Promptly as that sunrise the Chlorin explorer appeared at the lifeless mine, and when he found the loading hoppers empty he calmly proceeded to the nearest city and began to beam it down. Finding it deserted he cut off and felt a powerful spy-ray upon which he set a tracer. This time the ray held up and he saw the immense fortress which had been erected during his absence, a fortress which he forthwith attacked viciously, carelessly, and with the loftily arrogant contempt which seemed to characterize his breed. But was that innate contemptuousness the real reason for that suicidal attempt? Or had that vessel's commander been ordered by the Great Ones to sacrifice himself and his command so that they could measure Valeron's defensive power? If so, why did he visit the mine at all, and why did he not know beforehand the location of the fortress? Camouflage? In view of what the Great Ones of Chlora must have known, why that commander did what he did that morning no one of Valeron ever knew. The explorer launched a beam, just one. Then Quadrin Radnor pressed a contact, and out against the invader there flamed a beam of such violence that the amoebas had no time to touch his controls, that even the automatic trips of his zone of force, if he had such trips, did not have time in which to react. The defense screens scarcely flashed, so rapidly did that terrific beam drive through them and the vessel itself disappeared almost instantly, molten, vaporized, consumed utterly. But there was no exultation beneath Valeron's mighty dome. From the bar dial down the defenders of their planet knew full well that the real attack was yet to come, and knew that it would not be long delayed. It was not and the ships which came to reduce Phaleron's far-flung stronghold in no way resembled any form of spaceship with which humanity was familiar. Two stupendous structures of metal appeared, plunging stolidly along veritable flying fortresses of such enormous bulk and mass that it seemed scarcely conceivable for them actually to support themselves in air. Simultaneously, the two floating castles launched against the towering dome of defense the heaviest beams they could generate and project. Under that awful thrust Valeron's mighty generators shrieked a mad crescendo, and her imponderable shield radiated a fierce, eye-tearing violet, but it held. Not for nothing had the mightiest minds of Valeron wrought to convert their mechanisms and forces of peace 
into engines of war. Not for nothing had her people labored with all their mental and physical might for almost two score days and nights, smoothly and efficiently as one mind in one body. Not easily did even Valeron's titanic defensive installation carry that frightful load, but they carried it. Then, like the mythical Jove hurling his bolt, like, that is, save that beside that Valeronian beam any possible bolt of lightning would have been as sweetly innocuous a caress as young love's first kiss. Radnor drove against the nearest structure a beam of concentrated fury, a beam behind which there were every volt and every ampere that his stupendous offensive generators could yield. The chlorine defenses in turn were loaded grievously, but in turn they also held, and for hours then there raged a furiously spectacular struggle. Beams, rods, planes, and needles of every known kind and of every usable frequency of vibratory energy were driven against impenetrable neutralizing screens. Monstrous cannon hurling shells with a velocity and of an explosive violence far beyond anything known to us of Earth radio-beam dirigible torpedoes, robot-manned drill-planes, and the many other lethal agencies of ultra-scientific war. All these were put to use by both sides in those first few frantic hours. But neither side was able to make any impression upon the other. Then, each realizing that the other's defenses had been designed to withstand his every force, the intensive combat settled down to a war of sheer attrition. Radnor and his scientists devoted themselves exclusively to the development of new and ever more powerful weapons of offense. The Chlorins ceased their fruitless attacks upon the central dome and concentrated all their offensive power into two semicircular arcs which they directed vertically downward upon the outer ring of the Valorian works in an incessant and methodical flood of energy. They could not pierce the defensive shields against Valeron's massed power, but they could and did bring into being a vast annular lake of furiously boiling lava into which the outer ring of fortresses began slowly to crumble and to dissolve. This method of destruction, while slow, was certain, and grimly, pertinaciously, implacably, the Chlorins went about the business of reducing Valeron's only citadel. The Bardile wondered audibly how the enemy could possibly maintain indefinitely an attack so profligate of energy, but he soon learned that there were at least four of the floating fortresses engaged in the undertaking. Occasionally, the two creations then attacking were replaced by two precisely similar structures, presumably to return to Chlora in order to renew their supplies of the substance, whatever it was, from the atomic disintegration of which they derived their incomprehensible power. And slowly, contesting stubbornly and bitterly every foot of ground lost, the forces of Valeron were beaten back under the relentless, never-ceasing attack of the chlorine monstrosities, back and ever back toward their central dome, as ring after ring of the outlying fortifications slagged down into that turbulently seething, that incandescently flaming lake of boiling lava. 
End of chapter 19